we're here again. Yeah, we keep doing this. Huh, imagine that. So, uh, welcome everybody to Marino Pictures Indie Brigade once again. Uh, if it's your first time joining us, please go to the Facebook page, hit that like button and the follow button. We'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, George, what do we got going on tonight? Well, Joe, thanks for asking. Also, you're a little choppy, just so you know. I don't know what's going on, but you're, you got a little choppy there as soon as we went. I got a little choppy. Okay, I'm going to look into that. So, first of all, thanks, everybody, for coming to Episode 2 of Romero Pictures Indie Brigade. As always, thank you to Joe Ridgely, and thank you to tonight's guests. Tonight, we've got David Madison, we've got Ernie O'Donnell, and we've got James King coming up. Um, I'm going to keep the intro kind of short and brief. There's exciting things going on in the world of, of Romero, which is pretty cool. Um, as always, we've got uh, the the little family woodworking uh, prop and, and production design company, McKim Wood and Leather, uh, that is going along great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, beyond that, the big news is with the Veterans Compound, uh, which for those of you who don't know what's going on, uh, the Veterans Compound is a nonprofit I've been working to get off the ground for a lot of years and have really just kind of begun to take uh, the, the fundraising seriously uh, in recent months and this year. Uh, and things are looking very promising. Uh, for anybody who knows me, they know that I don't say things like that lightly. Um, so the Veterans Compound is a phenomenal uh, effort, in, in my opinion, obviously because of my concept, but uh, where we work with uh, uh, veterans and help them sort of process a lot of what they've been through um, using the creative arts, uh, whether it be filmmaking, music, uh, woodworking, um, anything creative and artistic. Uh, and uh, if it goes well, we're going to be starting with a couple of classes of um, 30 vets uh, twice a year. Um, and uh, I, I just couldn't be happier and more excited about it. So I'm hoping that it all comes to fruition. Uh, it looks like we're in the final stages uh, on some some funding for it. And uh, I, I'm just, just make my heart warm to kind of talk about it. So, so that's the big news on this front. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So got a few guests on tonight. Yes, um, let's see. I think we're going to start out with James. Tell us who James is, if you would, please. Absolutely. James, uh, Mr. James King uh, is the proprietor of King's Fine Woodworking. Uh, he's probably one of the finest woodworkers that I've seen in recent years. Uh, he has a YouTube channel and a following uh, on Facebook. Uh, and I, what I love uh, about him is the way he talks about what he's doing um, and his, his love for the, uh, the, the finer aspects. Uh, of the art of it and the creative of it. So I'm excited that he's here to talk to us and uh, I'd, I'd love to bring him on. Well, without further ado, I am going to drop down and let me make a couple of adjustments and we'll get him right in. Hey James. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Good, good. I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. Seriously, taking time out of your Friday night and coming to talk to, to a filmmaker about woodworking. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in Colorado, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, what's it like there? Is it getting cold yet? 
Uh, we actually had a, a little bit of a snowstorm yesterday, last night, and this morning, but it's actually been hot. Other than that, 70, 80 degrees every day. It's been nice. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So, James, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself if uh, if I didn't cover anything in your intro? Um, just give us a quick who you are and what you do. I think I think you covered the the important aspects there. I'm actually I went to school to be a chemist. Uh, I used to teach organic chemistry for a long time, and I've been doing woodworking for even longer. I started woodworking right after I got married. My father-in-law kind of started teaching me. This was back in the in the 80s, and so I don't know 33, 34 years, something like that. I've been doing doing various things, and then uh, uh, two years ago. I, someone asked, well, why, how, why don't I put a video out of doing some woodworking? And I saw some different woodworking on, on YouTube. I really like teaching things. And so I thought, I'll give it a shot. We tried a video, and I thought it was going to be a failure because it was so long. Uh, but it turned out it was kind of successful. A lot of people liked it. And it's it's been fun. It's been fun enough to to where we I can pay the bills doing this as opposed to, to teaching chemistry. And that's, that's kind of a blast because I get to spend every day with my kids doing this. That's really cool. Those are all the right reasons to do it. So obviously, uh, when you know, I've I've been a fan of yours and a follower of yours and uh, a watcher of your videos and uh, all of that. And then I got uh, into your online community on Facebook and became active there. Uh, I've been woodworking most of my life as well. Uh, it's it's the only thing that kind of keeps me sane in these epic, horrible downtimes between uh, getting film projects going and off the ground. Uh, sometimes the process of getting it going is so long uh, and and painful that uh, you just need something to stay sane. And, and I've always been able to either make money swinging a hammer or stay sane uh, doing a little bit more of the fine woodworking. And and I love it. And and I'll tell you the thing that, that we really started talking after I saw of yours was a video that you did on the golden ratio. And, um, and then I actually sent you a video about the golden ratio used in the cinematography of There Will Be Blood. Yes. And um, and I started thinking about, uh, you know, more of a correlation. I've always kind of wanted to figure out how to um, tie these two worlds together. A lot of what I do is just like, you know, a lot of what any entrepreneur does is you 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 identify opportunities and you try to marry them together. Um, and I've been trying to kind of figure out how to tie the woodworking in you know, beyond the fact that I make props and, and do a little bit of production design here and there for, for little, you know, indie um, short films and things. Uh, and, and that just seemed like a, a, a perfect tie in and, and it started kicking off my brain and it got me thinking about um, d directly about the golden ratio and, and about your creative process uh, and in comparison to the creative process of, of say, a cinematographer. And I wanted to kind of, I really wanted to talk to you about that. And so I'm excited that you're here to talk uh, to me about it live uh, because, you know, uh, what we've got with a lot of our audience is a lot of young filmmakers, a lot of folks out there looking to try to figure this out, trying to get their first movie made, trying to get their first uh, song you, you know, recorded, whatever they're working on. And, you know, there's a lot of barriers that, that people like you and me face in our woodworking that are similar. And, you know, what I, what I think is so cool about the way you explain things is that you put it in terms that guys like me can understand. And I'm like this terminally creative person. And so I was thinking maybe we could just talk about that a little bit. You know, at what point do you think that that you stopped worrying about how you were going to build things and focused more on the creative choices you were going to make with projects that you come up with? 
You know, when did you kind of turn your craft over to your inner creative? Well, I, you know, I'm not really sure that I, I 100% have. A lot of things that we build, we build uh, out of necessity. Somebody requests a certain thing to meet certain uh, design requirements, like the, the bed that you showed a minute ago, the, the sleigh bed. Uh, There's a couple that wanted that sleigh bed, and it, the thing is it had to be a certain height, a certain width, and you had to hold a queen-size mattress, and so but no standard sleigh bed would fit that. I, so I had to alter the angles and stuff like that, but I had to try to keep it aesthetically pleasing with the proportions. So, you know, I think everything that we do, I start with uh, something that has a practical need, and then I try to design something that looks good, looks proportional uh, from that. So I don't I do not do a whole lot, unfortunately, of, of stuff that's just true, straight, creative work. I think my girls are probably a little more creative than me. They come up with some really good ideas. But I try to I, I try to take something that's ordinary and make it look a little bit better. And for me, it's all about the aesthetics of the piece, like the vice that I built. You know, I just I looked at a regular uh, machine, uh, machinist bench vice and and just tried to modify that uh, uh, or try to keep it, as uh, you know, uh, give it the same strength in wood, but make it aesthetically pleasing, make it look like a vice should look. So I, I, I guess it's for me, the only thing that I do that's truly creative, I think, is to try, try to keep the aesthetics and the proportions so they look normal. Yeah, well, you said that your daughters are more creative than you. I mean, that that doesn't come from nowhere, sir. That comes from you. So, you know, I mean, um, it's 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 interesting to me. And I do love watching you guys work as a family. Um, but, you know, uh, with regard to, say, the golden ratio, maybe if could you maybe just break that down quickly for anybody who who's watching who may not really know what the golden ratio is, the way you explain it is uh, is really just brilliant. Sure. Yeah. So basically, it's it's a it's a length to width or a width to height proportion that occurs all throughout nature. Um, the ratios, as it turns out, is about one point six one eight to one. And that's one of the things those calipers were designed to do is they'll, they'll create that, you, know, you open up the calipers and there'll be a short distance and then a large distance. And then any proportion that falls within that range or you know, with plus or minus 10% just looks aesthetically pleasing. That's the, the distance, uh, even in the human face, the distance between the eyes and the nose and the mouth, that's the golden ratio. Uh, the hammers that we built just uh, in an odd stroke of luck happened to match that golden ratio to within like about 1% uh, our Thor's hammers. And I think that's it. It's just a 1.618 to one is, is the, is the key for the ratio. Right. But when did you kind of like start using this within your, within your woodworking and, and. Oh know? yeah. Pro probably from the beginning, I think whenever, whenever I'd go about to design a new piece, if somebody's, you know, wants a bookcase or, or something like that, I would sketch something up and it would look too tall or too wide, something like that. And so we would just adjust it to get closer to that ratio. Um, the 1.618 to one ratio. And it just automatically, makes a piece look better it's it happens with boxes with anything now this is something that that like you said uh is naturally appealing um you you know that holds true across so many things uh you, you know and i i don't know really what it is about the humans uh that that makes this a real thing but it is a very real thing there are there are certain things that sound right to us certain things that look right to us uh, certain things that are more visually uh, just naturally appealing to us as a as a human, I guess. Right. I mean, is there do you know, like why that is or or do you have any idea? <laughs> I don't. I think there's a lot of speculation that those proportions look pleasing because we see them so frequently. Yeah. I think when they when we see them in living organisms, 
uh, we just somehow our eyes and our brains become adjusted or accustomed to, to those proportions and we find them pleasing. But they exist in places so far deeper ranging than that, even the twist of a, of a DNA molecule, uh, the, the helices, the number of times that it revolves around as compared to the height, that also falls in the 1.618 to 1 ratio. The, the distance of the, you know, the planets orbiting the sun, the same thing. So some of those things are far too great for us to see. But I think pro the, the biggest uh, theory out there is that it's what we see every day in faces and in living organisms. And it's literally wired into us. And, and you yeah. know, in filmmaking, and, and when I talk to a lot of younger filmmakers, they ask me, they say, you know, why, does, why, why, do, why doesn't my stuff look like that stuff? Or why doesn't my stuff look like the big budget stuff? Or, you know, and then I... I see no budget indie stuff uh, that looks like they spent a million a million bucks on it, and it's because of things like the golden ratio that uh, you know whether or not a lot of filmmakers even know they're probably even close to it. Odds are they are, uh, but there are certain films out there like There Will Be Blood, where the cinematographer made that the primary focus of, or his primary goal was to actually shoot the entire film using the golden ratio, and it's beautiful to watch, and it's. It directs the viewer exactly where you want the, the the viewer to be directed, and and you know it's interesting because I think with a lot of the woodworking and a lot of the stuff that you do, uh, your your work is so clean that you know when you when you use that golden ratio, it directs people's eyes across your work, across the screen, across whatever you're looking at, and uh, you know it's interesting to me because. I just uh, you're, you're you're so fascinating with the way that you come up with the things that you do, and I just feel like there's uh, there's got to be you, you know there's got to be a way to kind of tie this in for my audience to kind of understand uh, you know the, the stuff exists in nature and there are a million ways to get your work to be appealing. In other words, so as movie viewers for years we've been going to the movies and we've been being trained, uh, we we we're used to what handheld shots look like in big movies, because those handheld shots were done uh, the same way since the twenties, with a handful of guys holding up a huge camera. Um, so it's interesting that the golden ratio plays into this. Yeah, uh, I, I think when I saw that that clip that you showed me of that movie, it was really interesting to see how they laid out the. Uh, how, how the director did that is almost like he took every element on the screen almost one frame at a time and made sure that it had some bearing or some 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 sort of natural proportion to it and and somehow when you watch the whole thing it gave it a very aesthetically pleasing look exactly exactly and that comes into play in almost everything that you do um now now tell me when it comes to your youtube channel uh you said you put up your first video about two years ago correct yeah it was actually january two years ago so i guess about two and three quarter years from that point now. Yeah, and you said it did really well. Now, is that pretty much right after that is when you started the, the Facebook community? Uh, I think we waited almost a year. So the Facebook community, hmm, let's see, probably it's about maybe 18 months, 19 months old. I'm not I'm not sure off the top of my head, but we started that after the, the main channel started to grow just as a way for a lot of people used to uh, email me and ask me a lot of questions. In fact, I, I get almost 400 emails a day, a lot of emails. And so... I uh, I put together the community as a place for people to get together, share their work, ask questions, 
And the community is mixed up of a, of a bunch of very advanced woodworkers and some intermediates and some beginners. So when someone posts a question, usually they'll get a, a range of answers. So it kind of helped me to help answer a lot of the questions that were out there. And it was a way for me to get closer to and interact with all the people as well. I spend about 100 hours a month in the, in the community answering questions. Wow, that's really cool. Well, I mean, here's the thing about it. It's probably the most truly and genuinely collaborative community I've ever seen on social media. And, um, you know, that's kind of the spirit of what I'm trying to get going here with the Indie Brigade. Uh, the, the whole concept behind the Indie Brigade is that there is also a secret Facebook community that once you're a guest or you become a friend of the show, you get invited into. Uh, and it's for uh, it's for people to uh, basically collaborate and, and 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 learn from each other and work together. And so filmmakers can find musicians and musicians can find films and uh, everybody can kind of work together. Um, you know, have you done, I know that you've done a lot of uh, larger framing and, and, and larger construction as well. Um, have you ever considered um, sort of turning your skills and your talents toward uh, production design for film and television or basically maybe making those services available to our community? Yeah, I definitely. In fact, it's funny you mentioned that my family has owned several big haunted houses, haunted attractions in, in Denver. Uh, Primitive Fear, 13th Street Manor, some places like that in, in Albuquerque as well. And so for about 14 years, we did that. And I went in and worked with them and actually created and built the sets for those. And we built those pretty, some of them are very elaborate, realistic movie sets uh, that we built. You know, we have to we'll go in and just recreate a room to, to meet a particular vision or whatever. And so we have done a lot of that. And I had a lot of fun doing that. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Uh, my uncle, who was uh, kind of in charge of the whole thing, he retired. So uh, you know, we've, we've closed those down since then, but uh, I think they still license out the name. Uh, but that is, that's a lot of fun. I think a lot of people, anybody who's done some woodworking or some framing could really get into set design. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if maybe that's something that, uh, you know, you'd be willing to kind of join our community and maybe just sort of even just offer opinions or guidance to some of these folks out there who are looking to try to figure out how to how to take no budget and turn it into something. Um, you know what I mean? So, I mean, it's, uh, that's kind of, okay. okay. It cut out on me there for a minute. I, I you saw, you said something about the, your community and then you, Oh yeah. Are you there? Doubt. Hello. Yep. I can hear you now. Go ahead. Oh, okay. All right. I was saying, would you be willing to come into our community and just basically be able to offer some like, uh, you know, kind of advice to these, to some young folks who may be looking to figure out how to get something out of nothing, you know? So in other words, they got these no budgets and they're really trying to figure out how to make the movie look good. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot of ways, yeah. <laughs> a lot of ways to do that through set design, prop design, things like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to find uh, an amazing uh, small group of, of, of ragtag professionals, I guess, from all walks of everything creative and artistic to come together. Um, because there's, there's the, you know, when I got into the, the film business, it was, there was a, a collaborative nature to it. Um, especially in the indie world. And, and over the years I've watched it get a little bit more cutthroat. Um, but what I found in the horror community, which is the absolute best fan community in the world, is that um, there's a loyalty and a dedication and a true desire to collaborate. Um, and I've really only ever seen it in the horror uh, in the horror world. 
And now I've seen it uh, on the online woodworking world through your group and your community. And, um, you know, I think that that's a phenomenal model. And I, I think that this is, um, you know, this could be a great, a great future kind of just moving forward. Everything seems really, really fun. Um, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I'd be very interested in, in participating and, and helping out. You can, you can just create some amazing sets for next to nothing whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, even beyond the sets, even just props that are made for a character to use that are special to that character. So somebody doesn't run down to the dollar store and buy something and change it with duct tape. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's there's a million ways to 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 make something specific for for a character that really enhances a you know a visual story. Yeah. Um. So, uh, well, this is very exciting to me. There's a there's a picture of that workbench that I want to build. Um, <laughs> that thing's crazy. But yeah. uh, yeah. So, well, so let me ask you this. I had a question in my mind, and I, I think that that last train of thought just left town, and I don't think I was on it. Um. I had a question for you and I should have written it down anyway. Uh, well, is there anything that you would like to, to, to kind of talk about with regard to your business or how people can find you or anything like that? Uh, you know, we're not, I don't, I even make an effort to go out and, and, and actively promote anything. I think uh, we do it more for fun than anything else. The fact that we can make a living off it's is fantastic. It's not a great living, but it's, it's a lot of fun. But I think if people are interested, they can, Check us out on YouTube. It's uh, kingsfinewoodworking.com. And and then if they watch enough of those, they'll see links or hints here or there where the there's access to the community. You know, if they apply to get into the community, if they answer the questions, we check them out, make sure they're woodworker, then, you know, they're welcome there. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's good enough for us. Awesome. Well, listen, you've got a beautiful family, and I enjoy watching you. And I'm really happy that we've, we've started to become friends, too, through this whole thing. So Yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight, James. Really, it means the world to me. And, I, and I, you know, thanks for talking to me about this. You bet. You're very welcome. All right. Have a great night. You too. It would help if I took the mute button off because I wasn't on camera, but <laughs> if that's the worst thing that happens tonight, guess what, man? <laughs> We're way ahead of the game. <laughs> You're doing all right. <laughs> anyway, that I mean, there was some really cool, intricate freaking stuff there, man. That's amazing. I'm telling you, he's probably he's probably the best woodworker. Uh, his stuff is just amazing, and he built it so beefy and to last forever. Um, and, and, you know, and understand so much about it. And uh, I just kind of wanted to have him on to raise some awareness about the golden ratio with filmmakers and, and talk about it from a different standpoint from filmmaking. So it really does mean the world to me that he came on tonight. Right on. Well, um, I think we're going to go with our next guest, uh, David Lee Madison. Um, are you set? Absolutely. Okay, you hesitated there for a second. <laughs> right on. All right, let me bring David up. What was that? And there he is. Where? Hey, there he is. Hey, the lighting is much more dramatic. Now he's muted. 
Now he's muted. You know why? Because I muted his microphone when the other gentleman was on. Now he can speak. Watch. Magic. Wow. Can you hear me? <laughs> That's unbelievable. Right? Modern technology. It's, it's phenomenal. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Great. That was a very interesting piece. I mean, uh, I never really uh, thought much of, about the intricacies of, like, of what he does, but that was pretty awesome. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, woodworking is, I've been woodworking as long as I've been shooting things with a camera. And uh, when I watched the, when I watched James, uh, it just takes me back to, to the love for it. Um, and the love for the woodworking helps the love for the filmmaking stay fresh and vice versa. And, and it really does keep me sane. Well, sadly, I've been working with my wood for since I'm about 18, but that's pretty much the extent of it. You can still see, so that's good. <laughs> what? What'd you say, young man? <laughs> that is awesome. So you and Joe have some some history, yeah? Yes, I was on Joe's show, I think. Was it last year, Joe? It's been yeah, a, a, bit, a bit. Sounds and, about right. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, we're you know, we're friends on Facebook, and uh, I have the utmost respect for Joe. Um, I you. think he's really good uh, at what he does. And uh, when he reached out to me and said, "Hey, do you want to do the show?" Uh, I think before he finished IMing me, I responded, "Absolutely." Awesome. Yep. Well, and I, I'm uh, very honored to meet you, George. I was a big fan of your dad's. And yeah. I'm currently in the uh, early stages of working with one of your dad's uh, old mates, John Russo. Oh yeah, what, yeah. Are you, what are you and John working on? We're putting together something. We're not. It's kind of. Uh, I, I'm uh, going with the idea of like an apt pupil type of film with okay. uh, with John being the Ian McKellum character. But uh, we're at the very early stages, uh, so we'll see how that develops. But I would love to work with John. He's a smart guy. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. John actually. I remember John throughout my whole life. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> well, listen, what uh, what is it that you let's start out by talking about what you want to talk about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what would you what are you working on? What do you have going on? What are you here to talk about? I know that I heard rumor of some sort of announcement, maybe. I'm oh, absolutely. Uh in 2012, uh, I made a film called uh, Mr. Hush, and uh, uh, I was blessed for it to kind of develop a cult following. I get to do conventions for it, uh, uh, a lot of fans for that film, and it was just a loving homage to 80s horror films, kind of in uh, uh, a contemporary reinvention of 80s horror films. So... Uh, uh, it came out in 2012, and uh, it reached several top 10 rental lists and sales lists, and I was actually very proud of it. And uh, ever since it came out, a lot of people have asked me, uh, will Mr. Hush ever return? And uh, I never really felt like doing a sequel or any kind of continuation of a story is worthwhile unless you have a story to tell. Right. So uh, this summer, my daughter, who's a, a genius, I don't know where the hell that came from, uh, she loves, uh, she's a big Civil War buff. Uh, 
So for her birthday, we took her out to uh, Gettysburg and Antietam, where all the great Civil War battles have occurred. Right. And when I was out there, I had a, like a wonderful idea came to me. So I get home and I jot it down. And uh, I came up with a, a script. And uh, this is totally going to shock everybody because I kept it completely quiet. This will be the first time anybody's hearing about it. But uh, next Thursday, uh, there will be returning to your screen a new Mr. Hush short called Mr. Hush Legacy. No kidding. Yep. Uh, it's a 13-minute uh, short, and it's about a Confederate soldier who is in uh, fighting in Gettysburg, and he uh, is kind of trapped and marooned at the Devil's Den, and uh, our villainous Mr. Hush comes upon him in the Devil's Den. I know Joe is probably the one of the, the only people in the entire country who's seen it. So what do you think, Joe? I loved it. <laughs> I, I, did you get to see it, George? I did. I did. I saw it. Oh, awesome. Um, I was well, I was hoping it was cool to say that I saw it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah, I kind of checked on that beforehand. <laughs> I loved it too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Joe. I mean, you, you asked Joe first, so I'll yeah. let I wasn't sure if you saw it, uh, George. It wasn't just – I know Joe did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw it, and it was – well, I can't give anything away. It's very cool. And oh, thank you. It, it was – it took me by surprise. Uh, let me get the other picture up. Give me one second. There's this really cool guy who's in it. Um, oh, there you go. That's a handsome fella. I don't remember his name, though. Uh, you know, I always promise myself never to do anything in front of the camera, but – for some reason, this one just felt different for me. Uh, a, to play a Southern Confederate soldier, I thought was interesting. And uh, B, uh, to do something with the character that I created that that is so dear to me, uh, uh, I thought would be pretty awesome. And why we made this movie is because uh, next Thursday, Mr. Hush uh, will be available for the first time ever worldwide uh, on video on demand. And uh, so when you go to download uh, or rent Mr. Hush, you'll get Mr. Hush Legacy included with it. Uh, if you are already some one of the over 35,000 people who bought the DVD or Blu-ray, you can uh, uh, just rent or download Legacy as a standalone for like a buck 49 or something like that. I don't know what the price is. So, but yeah, uh, I'm super excited. Uh, I thought the material in this film is extremely topical for the way uh, we are as a country at the moment. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a 13 minute piece, but I think it actually says a lot in that 13 minutes. Absolutely. And your Southern accent was point on. Oh, there you go. It does. I watched it. I actually watched it, uh, earlier today. Um, and I got to tell you, man, I thought it was really great too. I, I was, I was kind of wondering where you were going with it. And then it was, uh, I mean, your timing and pacing and it was great. Um, you, the, the way you looked at it is, uh, your, your perspective on that whole thing is phenomenal. There was a couple of moments. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna obviously talk about them, but there was one moment in particular where you made me laugh. <laughs> I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought for something this heavy to have a moment where I, it's okay for me to laugh and be okay to laugh as an audience member that you did a phenomenal job with that and that delivery. 
Um, I really thought it was it was good stuff, man. And, and that's really good news. I'm excited for you. And I'm happy to hear about all that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, the fact that Mr. Hush is a character that uh, uh, could go on for generations and, de uh, and decades, I, I thought it would be cool to visit a specific date in history, you know, and something, you know, over a hundred and I guess close to 150 years ago. So, yeah. And uh, uh, Edward X. Young, who's been, I think, in over a hundred uh, uh, horror movies, really sells it. So I'm just, I was super thrilled with the way it came out. And uh, I think it's kind of cool to just drop it on the public without anybody, without any kind of big hoopla on it. I'm hoping it's one of those things where the work speaks for itself and uh, people kind of word of mouth it on whether or not uh, uh, if it's worthy of getting the love I think it deserves. Well, I think it deserves it too, man. I think every, I think everything that gets made with the love that you obviously put into it and the history that you have with it, mm -hmm. it shows. And I, I hope that it gets, I hope it gets the recognition that I think it deserves too. Thank you. I see somebody in the chat room, uh, somebody named Kim asking me when my other film wits end is going to come out. Uh, wits end is totally completed. It will be in theaters in flagship cinemas sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that stars uh, myself, Brian O'Halloran, who of course was Dante from clerks and uh, Scott Schiaffo, who is uh, the Chulies gum guy in clerks. And it's a, uh, that's a feature length film. And I'm, Super proud of that. It's uh, it's a, not a horror film. It's a survival movie, but uh, it's uh, very endearing. It's very sweet, and it's extremely funny. Somehow, Brian and Scott managed to make it funny around how impossibly bad I am. <laughs> and I think we got to report on this when you were on my show. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that was a weird movie because uh, – it had to be shot over extreme blizzard conditions. And uh, every frame of that movie when uh, our hero is Jeffrey Stevens is the character's name is trying to survive a blizzard. He's out in the middle of four to five feet of snow. So we had two super storms over the course of two years up here in the Northeast, one called blizzard Stella and one called blizzard Riley. And like a moron, I get my crew and I have them uh, lugging around northeast Pennsylvania in blizzard conditions shooting uh, shooting this picture. But the great thing about it is, is that uh, when you do something like that, it looks super authentic. <laughs> and you break a lot of lenses. Oddly enough, lenses don't like cold. <laughs> whatever, would ever think? Okay, so this is an interesting point you bring up. Lenses don't like cold. Let's jump into... Uh, talking about kind of maybe uh, overcoming some adversity like that. There you mm -hmm. go. That's a perfect practical example. Lenses don't like cold. Tell us what you did because don't forget, there's a lot of people who are hopefully going to be watching this either now or in the archived uh, YouTube mm -hmm. who are going who are looking to folks like you for advice, stories about the past, things that they've run into, that 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 just all of those stories add experience. So now you've got our young filmmakers out there. And they're going out to make a movie and, and it never occurs to them that the only lens that they own that they saved up to go buy is going to break if it's too cold. What do you do? You know, well, you know, it's a it's a tough lesson to learn, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, we, we were out in uh, uh, on a hillside in Pennsylvania 
I think it was minus 21 when we were shooting. And uh, when we got back from the location to the trailer, uh, we had one guy who was like with a snowblower making like a walkway for us because the snow was like, I'm six, seven. And it went up to like past my navel. So we are going back. And when we got into the uh, trailer, I wanted to look at uh, the daily. So you take, the media card out and you put it into a laptop or something yeah. and I'm t- taking disassembling the camera and I take the lens off and all of a sudden I just hear like, <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is that? And because it went from minus 20 to 65 that it was in the trailer, the, the glass broke. Luckily I had uh, a few other prime lenses with us, but it's a very expensive lesson to learn. Don't take your lenses out in the cold and then bring it into the hot. Right, unless you have really good production insurance. Yeah, there was a bunch of uh, of my of uh, the guys who were on my crew looking at me like, oh, what a moron. But <laughs> you think maybe they would have said something before I did it instead of laughing at me when I'm crying because my lens is broken. <laughs> you, you asked me, like, uh, what are some of the things that I would tell people when it comes to making indie films? Or uh, I would tell them, you know, be a plumber. Do something that actually is worthwhile and you'll make money. <laughs> Come on now, that's not true. It is worthwhile. Look, it's people like us who are terminally creative and artists, right? We can't, you can't, you can say that all day long, right? I tell people the same thing. My son looks at me and says, "Hey, I want to make a movie." I say, "What, well, God? Please no, you know." And I understand why my mom looked at me and said, "Oh, God, please no," you know. Now, you know, um, but you know, I, making a movie is the hardest. And this is all kidding aside. Making a film is so unbelievably hard because you work your ass off. And then it kind of becomes like a child. And then when you're a filmmaker, uh, you watch it. And no matter how good or bad it is, you sit there and you watch and you go, wow, this is a steaming piece of shit. And every every filmmaker I know, even ones who have big blockbuster films, feel this way. And it's very, very difficult to... uh, work on something for, you know, 40 days of principal photography and then four months of post-production to sit there and go, what the hell was I thinking, you know, for the last six months? But then the great thing is, is that you release it to like uh, a few people to like see what they think about it. And if you get positive feedback, you're like, wait, maybe I ain't the moron I think I am. So sometimes you just, you swing for the fences and you hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you miss. Yeah, hey guys, I got to get to a couple of statements here, if I may. A uh, friend of the show, Chuck Daniels, said, I like the fact that David has an Army of Darkness poster behind him. When I was on, I had an Evil Dead poster behind me. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, Scott was saying or earlier, I live not far from the site of the Battle of Richmond in Richmond, Kentucky. Very cool. And, yeah, some of those I'm not going to read. All right. Well, uh, sweet. you know, the, the great thing about – I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. But no, it was ahead. just – when I have a thought, if it doesn't come out, it just gets go stuck in there, and then it comes out like I speak, like, in tongues. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the great – what I think is kind of cool about Mr. Hush Legacy is that uh, the, the fans of Mr. Hush are going to be happy to see Mr. Hush again. But it's going to be open to a whole new set of fans of people who are Civil War buffs. Because uh, uh, I did the research, and uh, uh, 
everything down from uh, like the uniforms and the swords and, and the locations uh, uh, are exactly what they're supposed to be, the time of day, the weather. And, uh, and uh, I, uh, there's a segment in the film where uh, uh, Jonathan Stark is uh, my character is writing his wife, uh, essentially a goodbye letter. And uh, when I was writing that, uh, it, it was extremely poignant to me. And I realized that it should be poignant because of the climate of the way I, I said this earlier. I don't mean to, you know, to, to go back and rehash the same thing, but I think that's, what's kind of important about this little short. And I think that's, what's going to make it transcend being, you know, just a horror genre or horror crowd type of film, but you know, who knows? Well, and I want to get back to talking about Mr. Hush too, the legacy mm -hmm. and the original, because you know what I want to talk about, and you know, just to finish up what we were talking about before, you know, I once I, I made a film once, and I had a screening for a bunch of people, and uh, I went outside because I can never watch my stuff with anybody, and I started counting the people who were leaving, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe I should try something else with my life, but that didn't work out. But to get back to the Mr. Hush, you know, so what? What drives you? What drove you? You know, the creative in you. Uh, what is this thing you said that you, just a minute ago? You said you get a thought in your head. You got to get it out. We've said that even a couple of times in the pre-show lobby tonight. Um, you know, it, it, what is that thing that has to get out? You know, you've got this idea, this Mr. Hush. You, you got to get it created. What's going? I mean, how do you go from? This is a question I like to ask a lot of people, mm -hmm. and I really think I'm going to like your answer for this. So. Um, you know, how do you go from a thought to a, a completed film? You know? It's funny because I, I spent the most of my adult life uh, as a celebrity bodyguard, hanging around some of the most famous people in the world. And uh, when I was approaching my 40th birthday, yes, believe it or not, I'm over 40. Uh, uh, when I was approaching my 40th birthday, uh, it's kind of the kind of job that you really can't do once you hit a certain age because you become old and fat. That's kind of what happened to me. And uh, I see all these creative people doing all these creative things that they really love and that they uh, that that they're having great successes with. And I said, you know, Dave, if you don't do this now, you're never going to do it. So. Uh, I wrote a script for back in uh, 2010 for Mr. Hush. And I reached out to all my uh, celebrity friends who I've met throughout the years uh, and said, Hey, I wrote the script. Uh, I want to make this picture. And would you be willing to read the script? And uh, it's very strange because you, when you don't, when you don't know this, it's a, it's a great lesson to learn when you make a film it's kind of like a big party that everybody wants to be invited to. So I wrote this script. And when I was a kid uh, back in uh, the mid eighties, uh, Fright Night came out and I thought Fright Night was the greatest movie ever. And when I was 15, I remember my brother, it came out on August 2nd, uh, 1985. And why I remember this is because it was my 15th birthday, August 2nd. And, uh, I was enamored with Stephen Jeffrey's character, Evil Ed. I thought that was one of the coolest parts I ever seen in film. And I really related to the creepy little high school guy because uh, I was the creepy little high school guy. And uh, then, you know, fast forward, you know, 25 years later, I'm sending Stephen Jeffries a copy of my Mr. Hush script. And he's like, oh, sure, Dave, I'd love to do it. And I was just like, really? So, I mean, it's just those kind of synergies that get, 
to come together. Uh, Brad Lurie, who played Michael Myers, and he played uh, in one of the X-Men movies. I was a big fan of his, and I asked him if he wanted to be the lead. He jumped right on board. I asked Steve Dash, who is uh, best known as uh, Jason Voorhees in, in uh, Friday the 13th, part two, and uh, if he wanted to be involved, and he came on board. Then I gave my pal Huey Lewis a call and asked him if he wanted to do the soundtrack song, and they all jumped on board and did the Mr. Hush theme for me. So, I mean, it was uh, just a synergy of it's like a big snowball. You get on top of a hill and you make a you know a little snowball and you roll it down the hill and it becomes a big snowball and you get squished by it when by the time you hit the bottom. <laughs> that sounds like an absolute trip, man. Yeah, it was great. It was a you know it was a small two hundred thousand dollar movie that we made in Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, but uh, then Kino Lorber, which is one of the one of the more prestigious indie labels, picked it up. And one of the great things about it is that Redbox picked it up. Yeah. And when Redbox picks up a film, uh, that's between 30 and 35,000 units right off the top. Yep. So uh, uh, it, it was beautiful in that Redbox picked it up, Netflix picked it up. We were honored to be one of only 50 films that are uh, uh, put in the Margaret Herrick Library in uh, Hollywood, which is the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Library. Every year they pick 50 films to put in their core archives. And they seen uh, Mr. Hush out at the Lamley Theater in Hollywood and, and reached out to us and asked to put, you know, our silly little, you know, B-horror movie in the Motion Picture uh, Academy's core archives. I mean, it's just beyond bizarre like, all, how all these things kind of just happen. So it's now part of history forever. Yeah. If anybody who's watching this is uh, in Hollywood, head out to the Margaret Herrick Library and go to the core collection section and you could see uh, a copy of our script, our movie poster and uh, and a copy of the DVD, which is now preserved forever. So I'm just like, wow. Yeah. But it's funny. Uh, I was I, I, I made the movie and I knew the release date was coming out. And uh, my family and I were driving down to Disney, which was well, the movie came out in August. And every August, my family drives from northeast Pennsylvania to Disney. And uh, we stopped in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, because the car was having an issue. So uh, I was all wired because it was late at night. My family and I were uh, in a pouring rainstorm and the car was breaking down. So we pulled into a hotel and in the hotel uh, in the parking lot was one of those Walmart super centers. So I put my wife and daughter to bed, and I was all wired from driving all day. I said, honey, I'm just going to take, uh, take a stroll through the Walmart and pick up like a Powerade or something. She's, I walk over to Walmart, and uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're assembling the end cap for Mr. Hush. And I was like, really? Somebody outside of like Pennsylvania is going to see this movie? So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, those, are the, those are the little things that make you happy when you do these things. Those are the things. Those are yeah. the I mean, you know, I remember when I watch anything I've done, I remember every conversation I had around the shot, around every shot or every edit or anything I ever had to argue with anybody about. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, okay. So now you've gone on this roller coaster and now here we are and you've made this, this short Mr. Hush legacy. Mm -hmm. And this had to be, tell, tell me about this production. Tell me about the, the, the actual production, the physical production of this. Was this just something that you personally had to get out and you just went and did it? Yeah, it was literally uh, uh, Mr. Hush was property of Kino Lorber for seven years. And I recently got my property back. And uh, 
nothing bad to say about Kino Lorber. They did great things with the movie and it was an enormous success. Uh, but uh, they had the US and Canada. So I am taking uh, Mr. Hush and now going to put it on a VOD platform and make it available worldwide in 170 million homes. And uh, as a little extra bonus for people who are going to, uh, you know, the movie is seven years old, so I'm hoping to, you know, get new fans. Uh, as a little bonus for people who rent or download the film now, they get Mr. Hush Legacy with it. Right. Okay, so now let's talk about what you just said. You said that you got your rights back because a lot mm -hmm. of people might not know this. A lot of people who watch this might not know this, and this mm -hmm. is part of the point of, of the Indie Brigade, too. So you say after seven years, you got your rights back. What people don't realize, a lot of people don't realize, is that uh, basically when you're a creative or a terminal creative or a filmmaker, the, the rights of your properties are basically like your 401k. You know, oh, absolutely. You, you get those, you get your rights back, and then you can resell them every seven years, 10 years, whatever it is. You can get, you know, and that's how a lot of filmmakers, that's how a lot of people, um, you know, in the fringe in the indie world uh, continue. Um, they're, they're basically their 401k investment in their future. So, but you said that you've now taken it back and they've, uh, they kept the U.S. and Canada, you said? No, no, no. They only had the U.S. and Canada. Oh, okay. So I am now taking it and making it available worldwide. Okay, so now yeah. you just went and made your own VOD deal. Yes. Which is something that you can do, uh, and, and you know, that's something that a lot of uh, film indie filmmakers, you know, also I think find to be a super gray area is distribution. Um, you know, I, I've got this film. How do I get it out there? How do I get it so the world can see it? You know, uh, the funny thing is, is that in 2019, and yeah. I don't mean to sound like a schmuck or a prick, but it is super easy that if you have something people want to see, it's really simple to get it out there. I mean, Vimeo on demand, a platform that, you know, you can make a movie and put it up tomorrow. If word of mouth, it's, you know, it's available like in every household. If uh, if you make a, a product that people want to see, uh, everybody has access to that. And, uh, you know, so I, I think the business model of indie filmmakers uh, should be uh, stay away from uh, uh, unless you get a distribution deal where there's money up front or uh, or you don't have to sign your soul away for seven years. You're probably better off self-distributing. That's just my, you know, I've had uh, I've had movies that did well for distributors and I've had movies that did well for me, you know, that I personally distributed. And it's much more rewarding when you self-distribute in just in, in the cases that I've uh and friends of mine, I mean, I could tell you horror stories of movies that uh, made a hundred million dollars in box office, but uh, you know, the cats who made the movie seen absolutely nothing of it because you know, creative financing, you know, at the Weinstein corporation, let's say. Yeah. I mean, you know, what is it like as, as the filmmaker? So you write it, you, you come up with the money, you direct it. You can pretty much expect to keep about 10% of your movie. Which oh yeah. Receive because it's going to, be so far on the back uh, on the back of everybody else that you promised everything to to get the movie made, uh, and then behind all the stuff that you didn't promise, but it was between the lines and the agreements or whatever. So, and there were also things that you don't never on uh, never expect that are kind of horrifying. Uh, I turned my film into the distributor, and in some for some bizarre reason, they thought that uh, making my poster art, my DVD and Blu-ray art exactly like another film was going to in some way be a smart decision. 
But I, in retrospect, perhaps it was because it, it made a tremendous controversy around my film. But uh, I thought the film stood for itself. And when the film came out, before anybody even got a chance to see it, it was put on IMDb like six weeks before. All the fans from that film went on Mr. Hush and gave us like a, a one rating in protest of our poster art. Yeah. And it's just stuff like that is just so silly. Like if the fans realize that the filmmaker has nothing to do with the, you know, the marketing, especially if it's released through a, you know, an established distributor that, uh, it's, it's things like that, that you, you that are hard to swallow when it happens. But yeah. Yeah. And it's things like that, that people don't generally realize too. I once did a film and turned in, I had a phenomenal artist to all a whole series of posters and all this artwork and everything turned it all in and they released it with, uh, some, some bullshit cover they used like, uh, stock photography on. And, uh, you, you know, and I had no say, yeah. and, you know, you, you, you have no say you, you, once you get to a certain point, you have no say. So, you know, but, but then you run into, you know, there's this whole, kind of thing where no matter what you tell people there's that that mental kind of bar in every filmmaker's head that they want you know they want to get their own distribution deal maybe they won't learn until they go down that road so you know i don't know that you or i could say the things confidently that that you said and that i agreed with if we hadn't been down the negative road with the big distributors or the distrib distribution companies or sales agencies mm -hmm. just you know, and, and I think that might be a lesson everybody has to learn for themselves, but you know, it is a, it's a really shitty lesson to have to learn. No, so. absolutely. Because when you make a film like, uh, like the first Mr. Hush, uh, the, the last number I got between, uh, video stores and red boxes, it sold over 45,000 units. And you, you think, wow, you know, at 10, 12, 14 bucks a pop, that's an enormous amount of money. Uh, but sadly, uh, there are very creative finance areas at these, uh, distribution houses and, uh, you only get, I may never have a film that is that successful again, but if I knew now what I, if I knew then what I know now, I would have probably done things differently. Well, sure. Okay. So let me ask you, would you rather have a film that, had better numbers and you got paid nothing or would you rather have, <laughs> or would you rather get paid and have a movie that doesn't really get the numbers? Uh, I would, with me, it's always about being proud of the work, but right. I would like to also, you know, have at least um, some taste of the success that the film, you know, garnered, but yeah. it is what it is. Hey man, I never saw a dime from a few things, uh, and you know you get mad about it and pissed off about it, and you spend a while. Oh, I'm gonna get my money, and then you're like, eh, I'll just make something else. <laughs> hey guys, I gotta bring up one comment if I may, because it's kind of cool. It's from Joe Mc McParland saying, "This is a master class of indie filmmaking. Thank you. Love the advice." Oh, cool. Keep keep plugging. You know, many years ago, Bruce Campbell told me. Just work your doughy little ass off as far as making horror films. And uh, I never really thought my ass was doughy until Bruce told me it was. But uh, 
it's really just one of those, if you're not doing it because you love the genre or because you have a story to tell or because if you're, I mean, if you're doing it because you want some notoriety or if you want, you know, financial success, it's probably not the best motivations to do it, honestly. No, that's go be a plumber or do something else. Yeah, because, I mean, those the, the people who go in with those type of aspirations, you can usually see it in their work. Uh, it, my work is very, everything I do is got a, a signature style of mine. I'm very slow in pacing. I'm very deliberate. I do, I set up my, uh, my setups, uh, uh, almost like a, a filmed play. And that's just my style. I think, uh, what sells a, a movie to me personally is, uh, is performance and storytelling. So I will, uh, if I have good actors, I will set up the camera and let them tell the story. I'm not into jump cuts. I'm not into CGI. I'm into good storytelling. And I'm into, uh, uh, at the end, when people watch the film, they say, wow, that, you know, that was, I learned something or touched me or, you know, that's kind of the only reason I do this. And that's the that's the right reason to do it. That that create that inner creative that won't be quiet. It won't stop until you make something. It is literally there's a reason I say I'm terminally creative. If I was in this for the money, I you know there's a million ways to go get paid if that's what you want to do. Um, you know I, I I've never been I, I've never done anything creative for the money. Um, sometimes I wish it was easier to make a living wage being an artist, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, but this stuff is something that you. It's in your blood, and that's what everybody who's chiming in here, Chuck, who was on our first show, and Scott, who was on our first show, and uh, and Devin and some other people who were chiming in on the comments, we we all do what we do because we don't really have a choice, and everything else around it is just filler. No, absolutely. And uh, what I'm most proud of, when I look at my IMDb, uh, Mr. Hush is my loving ode to Fright Night, which is like my favorite movie of all time. Right. My second film, Middle Village, is a loving documentary about the town I grew up in. Uh, it just kind of holds uh, – the film is about nostalgia, and it, it's not specifically about the town I grew up in, but it's about a simpler time when we used to go out and play stickball and sketch and put baseball cards in us, something that everybody could relate to. Uh, and uh, Mr. Hush Legacy is uh, uh, a continuation of the story of Mr. Hush. And uh, my film Wits End is about uh, a father who will do uh, just about anything to get home to his uh, his wife and his daughter that he you know loves deeply. And if anybody who's watching this knows me personally or, or you know, follows me on Facebook, they know that first and foremost, I'm a, a husband and a dad. So it's all like the uh, everything I ever done is directly kind of res- you know responsible or surrounded by the things that affect me personally. Well, and that's, I mean, that's the mark of an actual artist, somebody who lived their life, but it's, it's, it's almost like the artist drives the ship, you know, Mm -hmm. everything else is there to just, uh, it's, it's your life, but it's your artist living it. And, um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I feel a lot of times, you know, and uh, wife and son, and it's the same thing. And, Everything I do that's that's creative, I I feel like I'm trying to do it for the family, and I'm trying to, uh, even if I'm doing it to create something for, that I've got to create, I'm I'm trying to do it in a way that's going to represent 
you know, well for the people that I love, um, because those are the people that love and support me and put up with my <laughs> crazy ass. <laughs> um, so, okay. Well, listen, uh, man. I got to interrupt for one moment, if I may, because I, I got a couple of things I want to ask before I go back down. I got to get some things ready for our next guest, but, uh, David, I don't know if you want to talk about um, the end of Mr. Hush legacy and the dedication. And oh, you, sure. And you also uh, mentioned um, Fright Night, and you were in something pertaining to Fright Night. So if you would like to speak about those for a sure. moment while I go down and take care of business. Absolutely. It was nice seeing you again, Joe. Nice seeing you. Thank you. Uh, as Joe just had mentioned, uh, the Mr. Hush Legacy, which is released on VOD uh, next Thursday, uh, is a loving uh, tribute. And at the end of the film, we say in loving memory of uh, the great Steve Dash, who passed away, uh, sadly, last December. And uh, everybody who worked with him on Mr. Hush uh, loved him dearly. So yeah, it was nice to dedicate, you know, something that we're so happy and so proud of to uh, Mr. Dash, who uh, you know was kind of a horror icon and just a great guy. So that's what he was talking about as far as the dedication. So when you guys see Mr. Hush Legacy, please watch through the end credits to, to see what or, what uh, Joe was talking about. And uh, the Fright Night project that uh, that uh, he brought up was a, a documentary called You're So Cool, Brewster. It was a multi-disc set that was released in England that Tom Holland, the director and writer of Fright Night himself, was involved in. I think he was the executive producer. And uh, they do a segment of, of the parallels uh, of uh, Mr. Hush and of Fright Night. So uh, it was awesome to be a part of that, to be a part of something that uh, I loved so much as a kid. Uh, and uh, to uh, and now I call many of the people from Fright Night dear friends of mine. Stephen Jeffries is a, a dear friend of mine. In fact, when this is a cool story, Stephen ran the New York Marathon, and uh, he came in like the top ten percent for his age group. He beat New York Rangers icon Mark Messier in time, which I thought was pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, yep, and uh, I've become dear friends with uh, uh, Amanda uh, Burse. So it was just, it's it's just so cool that. When you, when you get, you know, any kind of establishment in the business and people that you uh, idolized or looked up to as, as a kid uh, now on your speed dial or sleeping in your uh, guest room couch, it's just, it's just really cool. Yeah, I know. It trips me out sometimes when, when my phone rings. <laughs> so, listen, one more question for you real quick. What do yeah. you what, what, what's next for Mr. Hush? I mean, is this something that you you feel like? is going to be a permanent kind of story palette for, for a while with you. Is it, you know, every, every once in a while you might have a Mr. Hush idea and then just kind of drop this stuff. You know, the truth of the matter is uh, unless some compelling story I want to tell comes back, comes to me. No, I mean, this could be it. I mean, this just was, uh, uh, was a, a happy coincidence of something of a story I wanted to tell. Uh, I wanted to fill in some of the back history of Mr. Hush, seeing that he's, you know, been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, right. I wanted to do something that was specifically dated, uh, you know, and rooted in in real history. And, uh, you know, I mean, comic books and graphic novels and that kind of stuff. A lot of people have asked, uh, you know, do one of those. But I'm just if something, uh, you know, 
pops into this warped, frustrated mind of mine. Perhaps I'll, I'll revisit Mr. Hush, but uh, for the time being, I think Legacy is going to have to just kind of stand on its own for a bit. Cool. And when's the next festival? Uh, Mr. Hush Weekend of Fear. You know, it's so funny. The one we did last October at Wild West City was the first ever interactive convention where it was a haunted Western town and a convention and people thought it was like the greatest thing. We had like the headless horsemen ride through town and cowboy shows and monsters and werewolves and zombies. And, uh, but sadly, uh, my first job and my first passion is to, you know, work on motion pictures. So doing conventions extremely time consuming. Uh, so I, I couldn't tell you, but I mean, maybe next October. I don't know. Very cool. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on tonight, man. It's, it's really hey, cool. It was absolutely my pleasure. And if you guys will do me a favor, your next guest, uh, Ernie O'Donnell, is a dear friend of mine. So please say hello for me. And uh, Ernie's film, everybody out there, 100 Acres of Hell. It's a great, great film. I know a lot of the people who are involved in that movie. They work their asses off to deliver a great picture. So uh, uh, everybody uh, uh, watch Mr. Hush Legacy on VOD and then watch 100 Acres of Hell and make a great uh, double feature. Hey, that sounds good. All right, David. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me, gentlemen, and I'll be honored to be on your show whenever you like. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Good night, gentlemen. Bye. That was cool. Very informative and some great information um, based on the comments we have here. So exactly what you were looking for. Let's, uh, without further ado, get Ernie on if I can just find him. Give me a second. There he is. And with a really kick-ass shirt, apparently. Ernie. What's up, man? Hey, guess what, Joe? I think he's muted. Hey, guess what? I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) What's his name up there and everything? (laughs) I can hear you now. How's it going? Nice shirt. Yeah, let's see the shirt, man. Oh, yeah, that's the shirt that was given to our uh, Indiegogo uh, people and my, uh, my good longtime friend, Walt Flanagan. From the uh, people may know him from Comic Book Men and uh, a bunch of Kevin Smith movies, uh, created this lovely uh, thing on the bottom for us uh, as a favor to me. So Walt's a good dude. Awesome. Well, it's a very cool shirt. So let's, since you already brought up the Kickstarter, tell us about all of that. Tell us about the whole. Just go ahead, fill us in on Hundred Acres of Hell, man. Everything. Yeah. So well, Hundred Acres of Hell. <laughs> Is is uh as referring back to the marathon uh that Dave was talking about is the marathon for us. It's uh almost nine years in the making. I got on board about six years ago. Jeez. Uh and uh you know, it's typical indie stuff. Money was there, money disappeared, money came back, money disappeared. Uh and a lot of that is probably because, you know. Certain people involved are a little green at the moment, but you know, that's how you learn these things, man. You got to go through these trials and tribulations of uh, of indie filmmaking to figure some of these things out. But at the end of the day, uh, my boy Jason Kerner, Ed McKeever, and Gene Snitsky really worked their asses off uh, to find some money 
uh, and to get this thing rolling. Um, and then they contacted me, uh, Jason Kerner, my executive producer, who created uh, the movie 100 Acres of Hell. That's his baby, pretty much. Um, reached out to me and asked if I'd co-star in the movie. Um, and gave me a great role playing Morgan Childs. Uh, so I was very, you know, being in the position I'm in, knowing who I know, uh, I, I kind of get a little leery sometimes because people do send me scripts and projects and things like that. I always think that there's a, you know, maybe a backdoor reason to it. Uh, but with Jason, since I knew him uh, from school and, and uh, we kind of roamed in the same circles, I gave it a, I gave it a read. It was really good. Then they did a redraft uh, and then it got better. And then they decided to have, uh, which is a smart thing to do for indie filmmakers, just so you have all your ducks in a row, is to have weekly meetings about production, pre-production, what you have to get, location, costs, who's taking care of what, uh, you know, write everything down, have your computers there, uh, log everything, uh, which is very important, uh, paperwork, contracts. Uh, and since I got brought on board, I brought a couple other people with me as far as actors, and they were SAG. So uh, they were willing to go the SAG route, which was good for me, or else I couldn't be a part of the project. Uh, right. But once I sat in on a, you know, a meeting or two and they kind of, you know, being around the film industry for about 25 years now, you don't realize how much you learn just being on set and just being friends with people that are in the industry doing this on a higher level. Uh, they kind of realized that I knew a little bit more than I thought I knew and asked me to come on as a producer, uh, which was great. Um, I will admit you know, like Dave said before, and you and you had commented about filmmaking is hard and it's it's a different type of hard. Uh, and I appreciate what you do as far as, you you know, woodworking. I heard you talking about that and swinging a hammer and stuff. I've done that myself for 30 years. Yeah, man, it pays the bills. It pays the bills. That's hard work. Guys, yeah. you know, on a roof, guys doing road work, guys on the back of a garbage truck, all those blue collar guys. That's hard work. Yeah. Uh, making a film is not hard on that level. It's a different type of hard. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and I don't want people to confuse that um, or downgrade it and say, oh, being a filmmaker or being an actor is so easy. It's a, it's a different type of animal. Uh, but if you're passionate about it and you like the project you're doing, like I did with 100 Acres of Hell, you go in 100%. And I told Jason that from the beginning. I said, if you bring me on, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to tell you how I feel. I'm going to tell you when I think you're doing something wrong, even though I don't know everything. Uh, but I'm going to give you my opinion. Right. And I hope you're okay with that. Because if I'm a producer, that's what I'm here to do. If I see something going wrong, I'm going to say something. And sometimes they do agree with me and sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, like I said, almost you know, nine years in the making, we brought home a film that looks like a million dollar picture. Uh, and we called in a boatload of favors. Yeah. I mean, tons. I mean, as uh, you guys probably, you know, I sent you a screener and you probably watched it. I mean, we got a helicopter in a damn movie. Yeah, I know. I saw that. I mean, I did watch it. I you did. know, that I watched it today. I yeah. Watching today. Right. So. I mean, 
and it does. It looks. It. Uh, I'm not sure what your budget was, although I, I, you know, I know what what Joe told me, but, um, you know, I don't know if you want to disclose that. But oh, I, I have no problem. I mean, we're, we're in the range of somewhere in the area of between sixty and seventy thousand. Yeah, and it literally looks like you spent like one point two. Oh yeah, I mean, like I said, we called in so many favors. I mean. Gene Snitsky called in favors. Myself called in a whole bunch of favors. Ed McKeever, Stacy Toy, Marky Denenbaum, Ed, you know, Jason Kerner, every Joel Ruda, all the people involved helped on some level. They want, yeah. wanted to help because they loved the movie. They were passionate about it. And wherever they, I mean, local people were just so great and generous up in PA to do things for us or to give us stuff. And same down in uh, South Jersey, down in the Galloway, uh, Atlantic City area. Were, were wonderful. Um, and I'm telling you what, dude, we were working late at night. This was not a, a nine to five during the day kind of shoot. Oh, no. Starting at nine o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night, waiting for the sun to go down and then starting to shoot and go down, you know, early in the morning. And this was like in November. Yeah. And it was cold. <laughs> so you got to remember. And I, I tell these people, because some of the people on that on the set, and they were all great, but there were a few that said something about, "Oh well, you know, if, you know, we're doing all this work," and I'm like, "Yeah, you're doing all this work to learn how to, you know, how to get in the films. Nobody's going to hire you in the industry, so this is where you. This is ground level. This is where you start. You start at the indie film, you know." pictures and hopefully somebody hires you and has enough faith into you to give you some work and let you do something. A lot of it may be grunt work. A lot of it may not be glorious. It may be shitty conditions, but you know what? At the end of the day, you appreciate it mm -hmm. and you learn it. And the people that can tough it out for those long days, the long hours sitting around, not the greatest food because we don't have that money that, you know, Universal has or Paramount has or Sony, you know, <laughs> Give us some more pizzas. Get us some more Jersey Mike subs. I mean, you know, go to Costco and get a couple crates of this and that. I yeah, mean, yeah. Or we're in a small town. Go to Walmart. Get some doctor's right, stuff. right. And you then, know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> soda and like it. Right. And there was multiple times that Gene, you know, for instance, Gene Snitsky would call in favors at some of the local places in PA that he was very friend with, where we would go there with some of the cast and crew, and and they'd feed us. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you could tell right off the bat who was passionate about filmmaking and who wasn't. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's like fight club, you know? Yeah. Stand outside. Yeah. Until you're allowed in. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, I, I want to go back to something you said, you know, it is hard and it is a different kind of hard than swinging a hammer or running a road crew. But when you're, in when you're in physical production, it's just as physically hard as any one of those other jobs. But what a lot of people don't realize is that, like you said, it's years and years and years of this emotional sort of right. up down, and up down. These, these false starts and this, you know, like, oh, we're going, we're going, we're going. Oh, shit, what's on TV? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, guess what? I just got off the best phone call with the investor. Oh, we're all good. We're, you know, I'm sending yeah. over agreements. Uh, we're going to paperwork. 
hey, what happened with those contracts? I don't know. I think the investor got swallowed by the earth or something. Yeah, he's. You, and then you realize you, you you notice that he's in the Bahamas or Bermuda somewhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, like what? What was brand new BMW they right. shipped around or something? You know? Exactly. <laughs> I, I um, mean, the the whole indie world is just a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in the day when you know. I was starting out as an actor. There was there was no avenues for us. I mean, backstage was like the only thing. Yeah, back yeah. when I was starting, there was nothing. I wasn't nothing. interested in front of the camera. There was nothing. The only experience that I ever, or the only exposure I ever had was my dad would take me to set with him when I was a little kid. Right. And so I started making the most of it, and I'd, I'd kind of wander off because he was busy being you know, the director guy. And I would wander off and pick up a cable and wander it over to the electric department, kind of hang out there for a little while. And if you didn't, if you didn't get yelled at by the union, yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And if I did, I don't touch that cable, kid. What's wrong with you? I don't give a shit who your dad is. Yeah, or if I did, I'd walk over to another department, and be like, oh, I think you dropped this. Yeah, hang yeah. out as long as I could, you know. I mean, just to kind of. And I started learning that way. And then I started, when I started out working on, on other people's things, I actually did it under my mother's maiden name of McKim um, because I didn't want people to think that my dad was out there making phone calls for me because he wasn't. Right. So, uh, you know, so I came up that way and I came up doing the shittiest of the shitty jobs, man. And, uh, and I learned how to crew. I learned how to crew hard yeah, and, and I learned a respect for the crew that, uh, you know, I got two pieces of advice. It's funny about this industry that are both so painfully true. It's not even funny. Number one is it's the only town, business industry, whatever, right? But, hey, Hollywood is the only town where you can die from encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) And a well-fed crew is a happy crew. Damn straight. You know what I mean? You got that right. If you got to skimp on something like, Maybe you try to skimp and, and not use a crane for three days so that your crew can have like, you know, a pasta bar on Fridays or something. Oh, I learned I learned that instantly working a lot with, you know, my buddy Kevin Smith. His his uh his food is just phenomenal on every set, regardless of what the budget is, the food is always top notch, always takes care of the crew. That's number one priority. Cause like you said, you have a happy crew and a happy cast. They'll, they'll go they'll go all the way for you. Yeah, they'll hang out all day long, and some people won't even report as much overtime. Or you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, people aren't as people aren't pissed off if you if you feed them well. Yeah, you know, that's not like hey, it's second meal. These pizzas got delivered at three p.m. Second meals at, at you know ten p.m. There's some cold pizza left. That's not second meal. That's you know, yeah, come in have have food delivered from you know if you can't have a caterer. You know, put the effort in. There's got to be somebody on your crew who knows how to cook, or oh, you know, yeah. knows how to cook, or and it's not hard to. You know what I mean? Put the effort in, and if you put that effort in, it's funny because the, I, I saw that you also did second unit director on Hundred Acres, and um, you know, it's funny because if you put if if you work with that passion every day, it becomes infectious. And if you go out of your way to take care of your crew, and that doesn't mean just feeding them well. That means right. You know, help the grips carry their C-stands back. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, back in the day, I don't know if you can do this anymore. You probably can't do this anymore. But at the end of every day, there was a case of beer on the grip truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, nowadays, it's 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 a little bit of something that people, I, I would say, smoke to relax at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, That's probably more common nowadays. 
Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I would have that stuff delivered to the trucks at the end of the day. And every truck had a case of beer, whatever they wanted, or, you know, and, and it was just, and people would show up and work on stuff like they cared about it creatively. Right. You know? And, and like, um, I was lucky enough to work with a Dolly Grip who worked with my dad back in the day, a guy named Bamba. And um, I loved working with him so much uh, because he had been on more sets than I could even probably count. And you know what I mean? It had more experience. And so when your Dolly Grip comes up to you and says, hey, you need to rethink this shot because of X, Y, and Z, and your first AD is a little, you know, wet behind the ears, and he's right. saying, what are you doing? You're going to you know, you're going to, you're going to screw this up or screw that up. I'm going to listen to the Dolly grip because he's going to tell me if you really want this shot up on that side of the hill, it's going to take me three hours to level, you know, 200 feet of track. Right. That's something the first AD doesn't know. No, so. yeah, you got to listen to your crew. I yeah. Mean, those, these, they're the heartbeat of the set. Yeah. I mean, they really are. I mean, they are the glue that keeps the set running. Yeah. So if you don't listen to them, you're going to have a problem. I mean, yeah, you can be a little persistent. Sometimes, you know, sometimes these, some people, not not always, but there are a few here and there that will get a little lazy. Oh, I don't want to do that. They don't want to set this up. We don't want to do this. Okay, I guess you don't want to do it. But you know what? At the end of the day, that's what I want. And you know, sometimes you got to push it a little bit to sure. get that magic. And I get it. But there's a way of going about doing it. Um, but in the indie, but in the indie industry, it's different. So as you said before, I was, you know, a second unit director on some shots, but I was also in on the ground holding lights while we were doing shots. While, you know, when I wasn't acting, I was in there doing other stuff. I was holding lights. I was set dressing, you know, the cabin, like the cabin you saw in the beginning, the seventies. Sure. I set dressed that whole cabin. You know, I went there the day before, did it all. <laughs> I went back, broke it all down. Those are, you know, it's, I just want people to realize that when you work on these indie sets, that sometimes it's not, it's not just being, well, I'm hired just for an actor. Right. If you go in as a role and you have some sort of investment in it and you're passionate. If they need help, you help. I mean, yeah. don't sit back and just, you know, oh, I'm only here to just do this. And that's it. That's, yeah. not, how you, that's not how you're going to learn. We don't have the luxury of unions. Um, right. And, 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 you know, and well, the luxury or the, or the whatever, but, um, you know, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, I've, I've shot, I shot an entire feature film in five nights with a crew of like four people. Wow, man. That's you know what I mean? And, and the actors were doing everything, you know, and, and it was the, it's the same thing, you know, and, and that's, that's how you come up. That's how you learn. You go through the hard, the hard, you know, the hard 24 hour days, 28 hour days, 36 hour days. And it, you know what? It sucks. It does suck at the moment. Let's be honest. Sometimes it sucks. You're so damn tired. You can't speak right. You're stupid. You're silly. I mean, it's like, okay. But, and again, again, safety is priority. You don't want nobody getting hurt. Uh, sure. You do have to find that right moment when you say, okay, we're done. Right. You know? And but, you have to prioritize. And you right. got to prioritize and be smart. But then if you think about it, if everybody pitches in and helps when it's needed, things go a lot smoother. And the indie world is about collaborating with people and uh, on hundred acres, it, everybody was there and collaborated and was a great team. I mean, they were digging ditches. You know, you saw the part where the guy was in the ditch with the spikes. Yeah. I mean, that was dug by hand. I mean, of course it was. yeah, I mean, these guys, you know, were animals, 
you know, a lot of these guys. And my man, Big Ed McKeever, he was he was an animal. Jason Kerner, I mean, going through the woods with wheelbarrows and fog machines and logs. And, I mean, all this stuff being done, it's just, you know, you got to be passionate. If you ain't passionate about your project or the industry, this industry, then you just got to step aside. Well, you're right. And now, I'm, you know, I've, I've, the trailer's playing down here. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, I see it, man. I love it. Oh, so now, so tell me this. So this is, how big was this crew? How big was this production? Because with the budget that you said that this film was made for, you know, it looks, it literally, the look of this film, how did you guys achieve the look of this film on such a, such a shoestring? Well, the good thing is it's a SAG ultra, you know, it's a low budget SAG, uh, SAG, was it low budget modified SAG? Yeah. Is it still ultra? They change it every once in a while. Yeah, they change it all the time. And they changed the rates, but thank God the rate was low. So they were able to hire me and a couple other uh, Eileen Dietz, uh, who's in the movie, uh, and a couple other, uh, I think we had maybe four or five SAG actors. Uh, so that wasn't that expensive. Uh, and we kept the schedule really tight. And every a lot of people were local, so the, we kept the cost down there. And like I said, we got a lot of donations and from people and everybody doing favors. But as far as the look of the movie, I mean... The way we shot it was uh, obviously uh, in November and April were the two times we shot it. So the look of the woods, you know, the lighting was key. Sure. Where everything was lit makes that movie. And the fog machines that we used uh, by hand and with machines. I mean, we were doing everything. At one point, we had uh, uh, one of our, our crew hooked up a tractor that he had and put a a mocked up a fog machine into the tractor and was running it. Oh, <laughs> uh, he just froze. He did freeze. Right, row. Let's see if we is just uh, to me, my, Michael James Romeo. Uh, this was his first movie that he composed, and uh, he knocked it out of the park. But, um, you know, it's we tried to make it simple, uh, a simple thing. And the locations were key too, and the set dressing. You know, when you see old Merle at the convenience store. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the set we found and we just added our pieces to it. You know, and same at the diner in Atlantic City and the houses. A lot of these things we searched, our team searched out and found uh, and pretty much, you know, dressed them up. The gates to the hundred acres, the gates to hundred acres of hell. Also by that's right. Yeah, buddy. But the gates to hundred acre to hell, we made that. We made all mocked all that up. Well, I and see that's the collaborative thing you're talking about. So and but just so you know, you froze up there for a minute. I think that might have been on my end, but uh I, you froze up somewhere between smoke uh the tractor and the composer. Oh, oh yeah. So my guy was running the tractor for the smoke machine just so we could get that circular smoke around the scene. So we couldn't do it by pushing the smoke machine. And Jason, poor Jason Kerner almost died trying to do that damn smoke <laughs> machine. <laughs> but um, and he's the executive producer. He's yeah, no, I busting his balls, you know, doing all this stuff. And Ed McKeever, you know, he's behind him doing doing this. And that. I mean, like I said, those guys were you know humping as much as anybody else, uh, if not yeah. the most. Um, but. And then I had said that the lighting is key in that whole movie. 
The lighting really makes the movie. The set locations make the movie. The music by Michael James Romeo uh, was his first time doing a, a score of a horror movie. Uh, and I, I thought he killed it. I really did. I thought it made the whole movie. I think the whole, all the pieces are there. The whole thing comes together beautifully. Uh, it's well shot. It's well performed. It's. I mean, it looks phenomenal. It looks like a large budget film. It literally looks like you guys spent over a million dollars to make. This yeah, movie. we we hear that a lot, and uh, we've you know some of the some of the actors in the movie are first time actors, obviously because you can't afford you know the best of the best. Um, right. But at the end of the day. Everybody did a really good job. I mean, Gene, I was surprised even at, uh, you know, Snitsky. I mean, I know he comes from the WWE and all that kind of stuff. That's a whole different animal. Uh, yeah. But he performed really well uh, as the lead. You know? I think everybody really did. And I think the edit is 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 killer, man. The edit is just a great edit. And, uh, you know, I loved it. I actually loved watching it. And this, and this shot that Joe has frozen down here, you talk about the lighting and you talk about this fog. Oh, you know, just, yeah. just to go back to that just really quickly, you know, the, the lighting is key. But if you look at this shot and, and you know, if, if young filmmakers watching would look at this shot, they'll they'll realize what it means when a cinematographer says that they're not afraid of the dark. Yeah. Right. There's that frame is mostly black, but the tone that's set in the darkness of that frame is so powerful. And when you mix it with fog that, yes, you, you know, a lot of again just to throw it out there you know fog thickens the atmosphere even if you're outside oh yeah just look at that shot if you if you got a good lighting guy uh, and guys that know how to work that kind of stuff it can do yeah. amazing amazing things yeah so the yeah. trailer's just over a minute long i believe you guys ready for me to pull it up so it, everybody brother. can see it full frame yeah let's do it let's do it all right let's do it Come on, how, how could you not want to go see that movie? Right. I want to go watch it again right now. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what. The, 
the scene, the the end, the epic battle at the end. So I was in charge of, you know, post-production and the battle scene was probably, we filmed probably about 25 minutes of that. And we, I, you know, we cut it down and cut it down and because it was just way too much, you know? Yeah. Um, well, Gene and, and, uh, you know, uh, Jeb or Jeb Tucker, the killer, uh, who's, uh, played by Sam Anawani, the, uh, um, the great Samu from the WWE legendary Hall of Famer, uh, kick the shit out of each other. <laughs> I mean, it, there's no, there's nothing fake in this movie. There is no like CGI, no prop limbs, rocks, cars. This is all legit. It's yeah. a legit, you know, fight. You see him. That's not me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Well, I, I don't, I don't I mean, want to give too much away, but they're jumping off of shit. <laughs> oh, I mean, if you're if you're a wrestling fan, you will appreciate it. Uh, and you know, those two really brought it hard. Uh, I wish we could have showed the whole battle, but it was just you know, it was just way too much. It was it was it was kind it kind of got repetitive to a degree. So that's why you know you got to make those choices to edit and cut it and mainly put it together. But it, it it's really epic. And even in that scene, the lighting with the fire and um, the music is just—it's it's so good. It's great. Release the uncut fight as a short and monetize the uh, sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how the wrestling fans—you uh, know—if they want a little bit more, we can give them a little tidbits of that. But uh, and that was done at late at night in the cold on the mountaintop. I mean, yeah. no mattresses, no pads. Out against the against the odds, against nature, yep. against the world, you did what seemingly feels impossible to a lot of people, but you pulled it off. Well, that's the that's what we were saying before. If you have a team of people around you that are willing to go the distance and really put the time in, the effort, and be passionate about it, I mean, you're going to yell at each other, you're going to hate each other uh, for yep. a lot of times on set, but at the end of the day, you're going to get something hopefully great. And that's something yeah. everybody's proud of. Um, I mean, we had our drama. I ain't gonna lie, we had our drama on set. There was a lot of different stuff going on. We, you know, but we worked through it, man. There was nothing. I told you this started nine years ago, and my team, you know, the core team, myself, Ed McKeever, Jason Kerner, and Gene Snitsky, you know, we're not gonna let anybody stop us. I mean, I called in so many favors. I mean. Joe knows Stacy Toy, a good friend of mine, went above and beyond. Marky Tenenbaum went above and beyond. Dave Kapler. I mean, there's so many people. Uh, I mean, everybody did. Everybody went that extra mile to to make this come to fruition. And we're hoping that it pays off. We hope the fans love it. I mean, I know the wrestling fans are going to love it. Uh, I know I got a you know a nice following through the View Askew universe, through the films that I do, through Clerks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I play kind of an arrogant little bit of an asshole, uh, oh. just a little bit. <laughs> so I mean, a little bit. You know, people might you know say, "Oh, what is that, Rick Darius, a little older or something, or is it a lost brother?" But who knows? But you know, I loved it. Uh, we're hoping it does really well. It's hitting. It's hitting theaters 
I think it hit theaters today in limited theaters today. Uh, but the big thing is it's, you know, it's going to be on streaming and video on demand on the 22nd. And uh, we got a lot of the big ones. You know, we got Amazon, we got Comcast, DirecTV, Dish, Google, Xbox, Sony. I mean, we're very happy from where it's going. Indican Pictures is uh, putting it on a lot of platforms. So, and it's in the perfect time for Halloween. Uh, it's good. And uh, the story is great. I mean, it's a throwback, as you know, to the 80s style slasher. Yeah. Yeah. You see the homage too. Yeah. There's homages to that. I mean, we want our killer Jeb Tucker to be kind of like, you know, along the lines of the, you know, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, you know, Mike Myers kind of stuff. That's what we're looking to do. Uh, but it's funny. The movie started out as like a slaughterhouse type of movie. That's that was Jason Kerner's uh, main idea when he started con conceptualizing this idea uh, of the mutants and Jeb Tucker and the story. But then when he got together uh, one day with Gene Snitsky, they kind of flipped the switch a little bit because Gene had showed him uh, some land. Uh, and then she, then uh, they kind of changed the idea a little bit. And then Jay just went off and created a, a whole different thing based on seeing this preserve type of land that Gene had showed him. Uh, and then Jason wrote, mocked up a script, wrote something, and then turned it over to a, one of his screenwriter buddies to put it into a screenplay form. Uh, and I got to give him props, man. I mean, I, you know, it's it's a good story, and I love. I mean, you can't go wrong. Jeb Tucker is just a great name. Yeah. yeah, look, it's great. I enjoyed I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I you know what I mean? That really, man. That means a lot to us. I mean, we worked oh, really hard on this. I, everything about it, I loved. I haven't enjoyed a movie like that. In, in and long there's long not time. one twist, but there's two twists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been we've you know we've been to some festivals. We've won you know a decent amount of awards and nominations. Uh, but we've, you know, most people like the ending, yeah. uh, but we've had a couple people that were like, oh, I don't get it. And I was like, oh, I don't understand why you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty simple, uh, to see what happens. Uh, yeah, but it's good. I mean, I love it. You know, this is a great platform to be on, to talk about this kind of stuff since, you know, we all are drenched in indie filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we walk around with it stink on oh, us. Oh yeah, you know. I was telling Joe, you know, earlier in the week when I was talking to him that, you know, I even as hard as it was doing Hundred Acres, uh, and all the bullshit that came with it, and the paperwork and the nonsense, uh, I decided to write my own script and do my own short and direct it and produce it. Just to say, fuck it. Let's see how you know. Let's see how it is by myself. So I surrounded myself with a good crew and and, and made my own short, which I just start, which I just released, uh, in the festival circuit. Yeah, the seventh day. And, uh, yeah, I too. I watched that. I got I had a moment. I had a moment. Just one moment <laughs> where I was like, "What the fuck is this guy making?" <laughs> to like find you and punch you in the teeth, until, and then I was. <laughs> well, Ernie and I spoke about it last night. I was like, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic, and <laughs> yeah, right. So, so let's talk about this. <laughs> you sure? 
Yeah. I knew it. So, so what made you take this approach? I obviously don't want to give anything away here. Joe's playing, uh, playing the, is, would you play in the trailer? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't want to give anything away, but what made you go down this road and what made you, what gave you the perspective from which you told this story? Were you trying to make people like me be like, Oh, fuck this guy until hey, the end. Fuck, fuck, fuck me or fuck the characters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Just, just, I, don't I, know. I was like, what the fuck is this guy doing to me? <laughs> you feeling guilty about <laughs> something? You gotta get off your chest? No, and then you pulled and then you pulled it back, and I was like, okay, I don't have to like knock his I don't have to knock his teeth Okay. <laughs> I think I know where you're going. Okay, okay. You, you did you did a, you I think you did what you set out to yes. do. Like you put me off for a yes. minute. <laughs> yeah. What made you what made you want to take that point of view with subject matter like this. Well, at the at, at the end of the day, it's it's a thinking piece. I don't want to say it's an artsy film, but it's there to make people think and have a conversation. That's the end game with this. But All right. The concept kind of organically happened in a strange way. So Jason Kerner uh and myself are driving in my work van because he would help me out. Uh, he was working for me for a little while um, while he was in between jobs because, uh, you know, as a carpenter, we pay well. So, yeah, he uh, me and him always wanted to do a short and we wanted to do a horror. And then we decided, oh, maybe we should do a comedy. Uh, and then he came up with the idea of uh, let's do uh, three guys walk into a bar. I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, we could do a comedy. Three guys walk into a bar. We could do something like that. And I was like, you know what? That's really cool because nobody's really done that. You know, and there's a thousand ways that that, that joke has been told. Right. right. So he said that. And as he's talking about it and I'm talking about it, I just stopped because we were in traffic. And I was like, holy shit, dude, I got an idea. He goes, what? And now let me revert back. I had just gotten back from Florida shooting a movie with Kevin called Kilroy is here or Kilroy Kilroy was he, Kilroy is here or Kilroy was here. Anyway, Kilroy was here. Uh, a horror anthology. Now I went down there and he had me play two roles. I played a priest, like a Baptist type pulpit piece priest. And then I played a pedophile priest. The pedophile priest is a real scumbag in this. Uh, and he gets what he deserves like they should. Um, Right. Yeah. So when I came, when that was in my head. Okay. And then when Jason said three guys walk into a bar, I quickly diverted to three pedophile priests walk into a bar. <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, what are you, what are you, you can't, what do we can't do that? You nuts. I was like, well, wait, he's like, I, I said, well, we can't do it as a comedy because that's a really touchy subject. I, right. I said, but let me think on it. And I'll get back to you. About three, four months later, I had a script. Now, I called, a, a talked to a couple of friends of mine. One's a, a very world-renowned uh, psychotherapist. Uh, he teaches at Columbia all over around the world and stuff to people about human uh, uh, feelings and things like that. I let him read it. First. And he goes, I like it. Okay. Really? He goes, yeah, I like it. But you need to just tweak this, this, and that a little bit. So I tweaked it, 
Then the next test is to have my mother read it. <laughs> oh, God. Now, my mother is a full-blown Catholic. Still goes to church. Loves the church. I begged her to go see the movie Spotlight with me, but she wouldn't because she was in denial. <laughs> so I said, Ma, you got to read this script. She goes, what's it about? I was like, just read it, please. I want your opinion. Because she reads every two days, she'll read a book. She finishes a book in a day and a half. My mother's like nuts. She reads- yeah, that was my mom. Yeah, they're crazy. She, so I really value her opinion, plus being a Catholic. And she's my mother. So I kind of got to give her a blessing. Uh, exactly. So she read it and she's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> she's like, why, why are you doing this? And I said, why, Ma? This is true. She's like, this is not, uh, uh, there's good priests out there, Ernie. There's good priests out there. I said, yeah, there is. <laughs> so based on that, she didn't understand it, but she liked it. But what she did make me do, she said to me, when she made that comment about there are good priests out there, she's like, you have to represent the good priest. And I was like, I will, Ma. That's, as you saw in the short, the bartender, Gabe, talks about good priests and what they yeah. are and what they mean to children and the society. So that little, yeah. you know, dialogue that he says is for my mom. Uh, but it actually made a lot of sense and oh, really yeah. fit in really nice to that. To that. But, um, yeah, man, I mean, I don't have any personal attachment to anything like that. I don't have any friends. I don't have no family. Uh, I've never experienced anything like that. It's just that going to Catholic school, being an altar boy, and just seeing the shit that happens and what's been going on, and really what's not being done uh, yeah. in that you know pedophile sex sexual abuse on children, and it's not just children. You know, I I mine is basically around children, but it it's goes it's a lot broader than that. I just touch on a lot of different things. And poke people and let them understand this is what's going on. And the ending is to let the audience kind of think about it. Yeah. It's kind of an open ending in a way where it's kind of you're not sure what happens. But that's my, that's where I let my audience make that. Decision. Well, I don't think it's going to be a very open ending. Uh, a very open ending to most people who, you know, I, I assume what I, I assume. Yeah. What, what I, what I believe to be exactly. Yeah, what exactly. And like, I, like I want, I want you, the audience to make the decision. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, so it's kind of, you know, I, for my first time, I'm, you know, obviously I'm very critical of myself, but, uh, I think it turned out pretty good. Uh, it did. It turned out great. You know, for my first time at it, and I, you know, obviously I let Kevin watch it, uh, and he gave me some really good pointers. It originally was twenty minutes, but then he gave me some pointers, and we cut it. I cut it down to sixteen, which made it a lot better. So I give him props for giving me a little bit of advice on that. But at the end of the day, again. You got to go back to the crew, the friends, yeah. the friends that I surrounded myself with to do that short, which we shot in two days. Uh, yes, we shot it in two days. 
How big was your crew? Uh, including the actors? Ten? That's about it. That's, great. That's pretty great. Yeah. Two to shoot, ten people. Yeah. I mean. Two days. That's really cool. It's, it's great, man. Like, And I'm telling you. I, I went back and watched it again because I wanted to go back and watch it knowing I wasn't going to be pissed off with you. <laughs> well, I'm so glad I got that reaction out of you, man. That's great. That's great. You know, it's a hot button nowadays, well, you know. It's it is. But you know what's funny? As we're shooting some of the scenes, my crew is getting annoyed and pissed off. Yeah, I would be too. Because some of them really didn't know what I was going for. Yeah, I read the script, but once I started doing it, you know, it was like they yeah. got it, and they were like, "Holy fuck, we we hate this. We hate what's going on here." And it, they even had a discussion. But what I will say is, uh, to all the indie people out there, is it's there's nothing wrong, and it's great to open your mind and collaborate with your cast and crew. That's right. You gotta take in what they're giving you. You can't dismiss everything and because some of the stuff that they told me made a huge impact on my decisions on how I shot things or or what direction that I was going to go in so I you know I give them all the props in the world and they stuck it out too man 14 hour days in a bar that had no AC uh, and it was great I mean I can't ask for any better I mean again I had my buddy Jason Kerner on there uh, he was on there helping out my Good friend Chris Vaughn was on there. Uh, Mark Frado, uh, who shot it and edited it and did the sound. Uh, and I brought my buddy Mike Romeo back in from 100 Acres to do the soundtrack. Uh, yeah. They all knocked it out of the park, and I kept it. I kept my budget pretty damn low. I yeah. mean, really, even wow. and it's all SAG. It's all legit. Yeah, it's all legit. yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to ask your budget if you want to tell us. That'd be great. No, but, it, you know, listen. Again, you got good people around you, friends. You call in a few favors. Uh, even with the SAG, I got it done for under four grand. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy what you can do if you actually produce the hell out of your film. Yes, and it's smart, which I learned. Again, which I learned from Kevin, to keep your stuff tight. I film most of the movie in one place. Yeah. Which yeah. saves you tons of money. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. You're isolated. You don't have too many variables to deal with. It yep. saves tons of money. As long as you did a great job, man. <laughs> you really did appreciate that. Yeah, and the name of the bar. Another example. Oh, you like that? Just... <laughs> huh? The name of the bar was... Yeah. Oh, you can tell. Yeah, the name of the bar was, was originally... I changed that. The first name of the bar, I had it as, uh, it was three, three Priests and a Bar. And the reason why I started, I went with Three Priests and a Bar, was just to get in the people's head the joke. Yeah. That was the thought. But then I was like, you know what? I really can't. I don't want any comedy. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, not funny. Not funny. I don't want to bring any comedy into this at all. So I backed off of that, and just on a whim, I came up with a crooked crucifix. Yeah. That was perfect. <laughs> wow. You, I mean, you knocked it out of the park, man. You really killed it. And uh, 
you know, and and it really is a, just a good example of the of the nature of what a collaborative spirit can get done. Oh yeah, I mean, and, and that's what I loved about it, and and you can see your passion for doing it in it, and I liked that. Yeah. So I'm curious: is the 20 minute version going to be available? Um, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, I like it. But it gives a different perspective. It's a different outcome, I should say. It puts a different spin on it. So I'm not sure how I want to do that. Maybe down the road I might, but right now I'm really happy with the way it turned out. And with the little special feature I put at the at the ending credits, I think that's a great way to end it. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's good. But again, I mean the it's just, I mean, I can't talk more anymore about indie filmmaking. I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of it lately, you know, and I'm really happy that I really got into it. Uh, I work with my buddy Troy Burbank on a movie called Gone for the Weekend, which is on Amazon right now. Yes. He, it's a full-blown comedy. It's funny as shit. But again, we didn't spend a lot of money. No, you don't have to. I mean, you don't to. again, you, you, you got to, you know, yeah. you got to be smart. You just that's all, that's it. You just gotta be smart and creative. If you're smart and creative, you can do anything, man. There's nothing holding you back. It really is. Well, listen, Ernie. I hope that you'll join us in our community and help offer I your advice. I definitely will. I, I, this is this is a great platform. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. There's only like six people in the group now, but hopefully that'll grow with each episode and all that. This is only episode two. Now I, I was stoked to uh, to come on here. I mean, this is this is this is this is nice. This is good. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and it's been a great night talking to everybody. So, oh yeah, great uh, panel tonight, man. It was good stuff. Yeah, yeah, man. So, listen, uh, I'm hoping this is going to be the beginning of a long friendship, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna probably jump off here now, call it a night. But I wanted to thank you again so much. Is there anything you want to tell people about before we wrap it up here? Tell tell people where to go to check out Hundred Acres. Tell them where to go to check out Seventh Day. Everything else you got going on? Uh, so right now, Seventh Day is on the, uh, you know, is hitting the festival circuits. So you know how that goes. We got to wait for our notifications, things like that. Uh, yeah. So once they get that gets picked up, I'll announce that on social media. Uh, I'm on Facebook, just as uh, straight up Ernie O'Donnell. Uh, on Twitter, it's O E O'Donnell Seven, and then I'm on Instagram as O D Blues. Uh, but you can follow our page, 100acresofhell.com, for all the latest information. It's in limited theaters uh, right now, but the big thing is October 22nd. It's getting released. It's going to be all over the place. Like I said, it's going to be on Amazon, iTunes, Sony, Vudu, Google, Verizon, Xbox, Fandango. I mean, it's going to be all over. So I really would mean a lot if everybody could give it a look. It's it's well worth it. You have a good time and uh, you know support indie filmmakers. That's all you know. That's the big thing. Awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you so much again, and hopefully you'll come back and talk to us again because I'd like to talk to you more about the business of the distribution and oh yeah, the business side of filmmaking a little bit more next time. Oh yeah, I could give you some hell stories about that, brother. <laughs> yeah, well, let's look it out and get you on again. Yeah, that'd be so. great. And so much, man. You have a great night and a great rest of your week. I appreciate it. You guys are the best. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you All right. So before we leave, uh, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna put David on the spot because he's still in the background, and you know we we, we didn't quite uh, do the same with him. If we may do that now, 
You know uh, what? You know, a good idea for this show is that at the end, you should have like the Brady Bunch vibe because we're all kind of like, <laughs> hey, hey. You, you should put all of your guests on the screen to kind of have like a jam session. Is Ernie still on? Is he gone? No, he's gone. So oh. he can like look down on you. Yeah. Go, no, he'd be like, oh, I think he'd, no, he'd be over here. Oh, like, yeah. hey, hey, you got that 20 bucks you owe me, Ernie. Yeah. So it, it was our mistake. We did not ask you. Uh, where can we find you and your projects on social media? I'm putting you full frame. Go. Oh, thought I did, sorry, George. Sorry. I said I'm actually thought I did ask you, so I'm sorry if we didn't. So the other problem when you interview me is I never shut the hell up. So yeah, well, I, I ask stupid questions sometimes. No, you're, you're actually you a really apologize. I'm well, like doing like 30 different things at once. So let's both talk at Joe at the same time. Hey, Joe. <laughs> Yo, what are you doing over there, Joe? Well, you know, you could you could see me anytime at the drive up window at Wendy's, you know, which is my <laughs> which is my regular employment. No. Uh, you can find me on mrhush.net. You can find Mr. Hush uh, on Facebook, Mr. Hush the movie, which end the movie, which is coming out later this year with Brian and Scott from Clerks. Uh, it's funny how we're all kind of like in the same community. I mean, uh uh, Ernie actually is a dear friend of mine. Uh, it would have been a funny story because he lost a baseball bet to me, Uh-oh. and he had to ship out. He had to shell out a hundred bucks to me. It was awesome. He it, it it was literally like when he opened his wallet, moths came out, and and as and and it was a bet on on baseball, and the Yankees lost. So it was just so much. It was just no, so. So awesome. it wasn't recent. No, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, I think. I think it was last season. Actually, that's why if he was still on, I'd be more than happy to let him try to win that box of ZD back. Oh but, wait, wait. Oh shit. So, uh, but uh, uh, and, and you know what? Uh, we're, ju- we're 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 going to roll with this for a second. Oh, before. there he is. <laughs> He's These guys, the stage. Just let him run out the clock. Come on, man. He's a mutz. He's a mutz lover. I was gonna give you a chance to win your dough back, brother. Oh, come on! You wouldn't. You wouldn't touch me this year. We're like crushing it. Come on now. You guys aren't even a thought. I'm not even talking about the Mets. I will. I will bet you on the Houston Yankee series. Oh, I'm trying to get them both on the same. Time. Ah, the Houston. Okay, Houston Yankee series. All right. So you're saying Houston's gonna take it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, There's the no Yankees, way. I mean, are from – no way. <laughs> There's no way, dude. No way. I well, if you what? want to IM me privately, we can uh, we can uh, put a little wager on it. I'll tell you <laughs> what. I'll tell you right now. We can do half of what we did last time. How's that? Done. All right? Done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people to know how – you know. Yeah. <laughs> it took me. It took me three shifts at Wendy's. If I lost that, I would have been in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna come by to Wendy's and get a chili from you. <laughs> the next frosty's on me. Hey, wait! You guys gotta have the freaking. You're 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 screwing the pooch here, Joe. You gotta have the the Brady Bunch thing going on. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to. I, George dropped out on me for some oh. reason, so I'm yeah, this is get... probably the point where everybody's dropping out. Yeah, well, <laughs> George has to go back and play with his wood, you know, Dave. Yeah, yeah you know. 
<laughs> Fair right, enough. Ernie, yeah. uh, your short looks fantastic, all kidding aside. Thanks, and uh, I saw Bob Senkowitz, in, uh, who's one of the stars of your short, in yeah. A Few Good Men on, on, on stage a couple years back. Brilliant choice in, in casting him, and I really look forward to seeing that, uh, seeing that film. Well, hook up with me. I'll, I can I can send you a link to it. Oh, that'd be that'd be awesome. And I see you got your bizarre AC poster behind you. Oh, the original. You, oh, yeah, that's yeah. I've had that since day one. Yeah, the original one. If you turn it around, is a really handsome guy on the other I side. I know. I know. I don't want to look at you when I come down to my room here, <laughs> especially when you're working with your wood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in my private little lounge here. <laughs> Oh, all right. You know, you got the something about Mary hair going on. Right now. <laughs> I was curious about that. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like that when the whole show, and then you go off for a minute or two, and all of a sudden you got the big hair gel thing going on. Like, that's because I think I was getting George all bent out of shape when we were talking about pedophiles and little children. So now you, know you know why he bailed. He's somewhere right now loading his gun, Ernie. I would be afraid. afraid. We're all going to hell. All right, gentlemen. Uh, I that was like, thanks, Joe. Can't even. You're uh, you're a good guy, Joe. I like you. Well, I appreciate that. Very you know what well. he's saying? That's that's him saying I don't like you, Dave. Joe's great, <laughs> but Dave, you suck. Um, Dave, I would never go Yankees. Oh. Thank you. Go Yankees. That's right. That's right. Uh, all right. You have to have us back on someday to see who actually won the bet, and so that the other guy can rub the other guy's nose in it. Uh huh. That yeah. would be spectacular, <laughs> gentlemen. I am going to call it a night. I appreciate both of you being on again. Also, uh, James King and uh, oh, hey, George is back. <laughs> hey, we could have that mo- that Brady Bunch moment. He's like the and and B Davis. <laughs> no, he's not there. He's his complexion. I think. Oh, there he is. Area. We, we, we lose Joe now. I've been sitting here watching you guys. <laughs> so you haven't you haven't heard me either? No, you were MIA. My daughter's dog oh. is barking all the shit. <laughs> I was oh. not MIA. I was sitting right here. There's a Brady Bunch moment. See, right in front of my my rise poster and my hello, Dave. Hello, George. I, 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 I'm going the wrong way. George, wait. <laughs> hey. Oh, it's this way. It's opposite. Yes, you got to look down, Joe. Yeah. It was up. <laughs> so you go. Oh. You know, I always thought that was weird that they do that. Like they, they See, did that little like head nod to each other. <laughs> I mean, they're family. Like, do they not know each other? You know, all of a sudden, Ernie's like doing all the showing us all the shows when he goes down to his room. Hey, did any of you guys get the Crisco joke in the in the Brady Bunch uh, remake movies? Uh, I haven't seen it in twenty years. It was uh, the girl, the, the the lady who played Alice in the in the Brady Bunch remake movies. Hands the father. Uh, I think it was Gary Cole played Mike Brady in the in the in the remakes. A thing of Crisco. And says, "I know you. You use this, and in real life, Robert Reed. Uh, uh, well, I'm not. If you guys don't know, I'm just going to leave it alone. Yeah, you know, no, I, I, I get where you're going with it. So the indie film industry. <laughs> <laughs> 
For those up and coming filmmakers who want to know what Crisco is really used for, that's right. It's a track lubricant for the kids. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. That's <laughs> so we can all agree. That's right. Actually, we could use it. We could use it to polish uh, Joe's head. <laughs> I beg your pardon. He's got the sli- you know, We got the flick back going there. <laughs> you call that the Pat Riley look? Yes, he's the Pat Riley of Indie Brigade. Yep. And I'm not throwing any stones. I have like a 1980s mullet. So what the hell do I know? You're not rocking a mullet back there. No. You, you, you wish a little bit rocking a mullet. Wishes. But Ernie did have the something about Mary. Oh, I did. I told you that's that's George's fault. What's that? Oh, that my hair. Dude, you have the Stan Laurel look going on. It's very, very, very hip. Thanks. Oh, not me. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> Who needs who needs vanity? We're filmmakers. You there you go. That's right. That's and that's right. why we're usually behind the camera. Look at us. Yeah, I don't do this shit for the glamour of it. <laughs> I do this shit because the voices in my head won't shut up. Well, you guys already friggin' crushed my dreams knowing that if I go into an indie film, I'm not gonna have a trailer, I'm not gonna be catered to. It's No, Joe, you will. Absolutely. Yeah. You will we'll take care of you. You <laughs> if you are if you're going to my films, okay. of Indie Brigade. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we do this. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on tonight, guys. It was great uh, seeing all you guys. Ernie, great luck with your film. It looks awesome, pal. Thanks, buddy. Look yeah, to seeing yours. absolutely. Best of luck to everybody, and we'll be in touch. We're yes. going to have to do it again sometimes, guys. See ya. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.